This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. With globalized data networks and e-commerce platforms, technology has made our world more interconnected than ever before. When it comes to security, the U.S. and European Union are two of the major regulatory bodies, and yet they have very different approaches to the issues of privacy and security. New rules put in place by the EU, like the General Protection Data Regulation, GDPR, have required more from companies whose business is the Internet, like social media platforms. But concerns over personal data online, cyber threats, and more have changed over the years on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean and at times created clashes of opinions. The new book of Privacy and Power, The Transatlantic Struggle Over Freedom and Security, looks at how the EU and the United States have evolved in the wake of a common need to protect their citizens and their data. Abraham Newman is a professor of government at Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service. He is co-author of that book, along with Henry Farrell. And it's a pleasure to have Abe joining us on the show right now. Abe, welcome. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you. As I mentioned, right now it seems like the the political relationship between the U.S. and the EU can be strained at times. But how is the relationship on privacy and data? Well, you know, um, the the central argument of our book is that – you know, we want people to think of it not just as the EU versus the U.S., uh, but really that there are groups both with the e- in, within the EU and in the U.S. that have very similar uh, views about security and privacy. And the way that the, you know, this area is transforming is when those groups team up in the transatlantic space. And so instead of a clash, you know, U.S. versus the EU, it's these security-minded groups and these privacy-minded groups, and they're using this interaction globally to press their case. What areas are, are you seeing that, that greatest partnership? Well, if you, you, know, if you look at um, uh, DHS Secretary Nielsen, she was just in Europe uh, where she, you know, she got uh, her hand slapped before, uh, because of it, or maybe you know, she got fired because of it. But what she was doing there was she was trying to create connections with security actors in Europe to expand counterterrorism and surveillance actions. And that's been going on basically since 9-11, where uh, interior ministers in Europe and DHS secretaries in the United States, they've been working to find new ways to collect data uh, to be used for security purposes. And on the opposite side, you have NGOs, civil rights actors in the U.S. and Europe, as well as data protection officials in Europe. They've been working collaboratively to rein in companies and also governments. One of the things you mentioned in the book involves the revelations of of Edward Snowden and and how they have have kind of played a role in framing some of these discussions and some of these concerns over the last few years. Yes, I think um, we are still feeling the consequences of the Snowden revelations. Uh, I think a lot of people right afterwards, they kind of dismissed it and thought, okay, you know, everybody spies. That's what we know from this. But it has really undermined uh, the key faith that partners in, you know, in Europe have that the United States was kind of a, uh, a trusted actor, and even more so that the firms could be trusted to keep the data safe. And so the Snowden revelations, uh, you know, they, they, there's a court case that's pending right now um, that's based on these Snowden revelations that could completely disrupt U.S.-European data transfers. So I think we're, you know, even though it seemed like it was a while ago, it's still playing out 
uh, in the transatlantic space. And, and, and great concern over that possibility as well? Yeah, I mean, it would, it would cause a, a major disruption in economic relations if that case is in the European Court of Justice right now. And if it finds what I suspect it will, you know, it's going to put data transfers once again in turmoil. But even with all, all of these concerns that are out there, I, I think there has been a belief that at some point, whether it is working off of GDPR or working off of rules that may come forward here in the United States at some point down the road, that we do need to have a, a lot, a, a greater level of, uh, uh, of togetherness, of partnership in general over data and security moving forward. Yeah, and, and I do think that in part of it is the result of Snowden playing out. What, for the first time, I think, since I've been studying these issues, uh, you're seeing a really radical transformation in U.S. views uh, on these these issues. And this doesn't mean that there's like a unified, the U.S. thinks, but there are groups in the U.S. that have have really moved their position. So if you think about Apple, uh, Facebook, they've both come out for GDPR-like legislation, but also you have politicians like Elizabeth Warren saying, you know, we need to do these things, or Amy Klobuchar. And we you didn't really have that, that alignment of politicians and uh, firm actors. And in part, that's because of what's not just been happening in Europe, but also what's happened in California, because California passed a whole bunch of privacy laws that are then flipping these firms, making them think about you know, what are their preferences in a global data environment. You talk about an interesting concept in, in the fact that when we talk about security in, in various forms, I, I think in many cases we think about it domestically. You talk about the fact that there's an element of domestic security that, that even needs to, to have an international part to it as well. Yes. I mean, I think that's, you know, one of the major findings of the book is to say homeland security is global. And you know, a lot of, you know, people like to look inwards and think, you know, what do we, how do we solve these problems? Well, we build a wall or we, you know, we look inside our country. But the threats and the, the challenges of domestic security often emanate from international sources. And so that requires you know, really a global perspective on how are we going to meet these challenges. We have to work with you know, actors that span the globe, not just within our borders. Because the expectation is, is that the, the negative elements that are occurring are not going to be slowing down, unfortunately, at any time in the near future. So you have to have this continued partnership, this continued higher level of security to be able to protect all this data. Yeah, I mean, I think what we've seen, you know, everywhere from the spread of disease to terrorism, organized crime, you know, actors are taking advantage of global networks and you know, that's the bad side of globalization. But we have to be smart about that, too, and think about how can those that are trying to protect societies, how can they take advantage of globalization as well? Uh, so if we don't do that, we're kind of leaving tools on the table. So then how does, to a degree, the pullback and want of a pullback by the current administration in terms of globalization impact all of these issues of, of data and privacy? Well, I mean, I think... You know, several of these efforts, in my in, in my view, are just short-sighted. You know, the uh, I think the the administration's view of uh, DHS Secretary Nielsen's trip to Europe, for example, it's kind of 
very typical of the current administration. It was seen kind of as a boondoggle that she was in Europe talking counterterrorism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in my mind, you know, that's exactly what we need to be doing. We need to be fighting these battles, not just at home, but globally. And we have these opportunities to do it. Um, so, like I said, I think uh, by only focusing at home, by cutting off uh, relations with these people that have you know, similar views, similar concerns, then we're, um, you know, we're disregarding our major tools to address these problems. Are there examples of, uh, I guess, normal business relationship on both sides of, of the Atlantic that we can look at and, and really draw from as a parallel to where we need to go overall in, in data and privacy? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. There, we have a very strong, I mean, people often underestimate the just deep extent of cooperation that happens between the U.S. and Europe on a whole range of issues. So, you know, um, antitrust, the Justice Department and the European Commission, they are in contact with each other when new cases come up and they talk to each other about what they should be doing. In uh, medical devices, there's mutual recognition agreements. There's lots of places where the EU and the U.S. are the, the government officials are really working to kind of solve the problems and think together. I think in, in the case of privacy, what you have is you have two different groups that are using those relationships, but they don't always share the same view, so the security group and the privacy group. And so sometimes they're, they're working quite intensely with each other, but at cross purposes. 844 Wharton is the number to give us a call, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio, B-I-Z Radio 132, or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. We're joined by uh, Abraham Newman, who is the co-author of the book of Privacy and Power, The Transatlantic Struggle Over Freedom and Security. Again, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio 132, or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney 21. One of the chapters in your book, you talk about uh, airline passenger data and, and how that is brought into this discussion as well. Yes. You know, several of the kind of the case studies, what we're trying to show is that the, you know, the laws that you have in Europe and the United States, they're being changed by these interactions. So, you know, if you have a security community in one country. They don't like their laws. So in Europe, they're, they're often uh, hamstrung by privacy rules. The relationship that they built with U.S. security officials helped them create kind of transatlantic agreements, which then they used to try to break apart their domestic bargain. Uh-huh. And in the, the chapter on passenger name records, we show how that happened, where you know, Europe, the European security community was really, they were locked out of this data that they worked with their European partners to create this transatlantic agreement, and then they came back to their European publics and said, you know, we have this U.S.-European agreement. We really need to change our domestic laws. And, you know, the main point we want to make is that we often think is that politics is very local, uh, but these global interactions are transforming the, the way domestic law works on very fundamental issues about how freedom, civil liberties are being conceived. So how important then is the relationship between the public and private sector on a lot of these areas in terms of building uh, the, the structure that we need to see moving forward? Well, you know, that's interesting because the, the private sector is often, they're caught uh, in a kind of a catch-22 right. where, uh, you know, rules from one country like the U.S. 
uh, conflict with the rules in Europe. And here we see this in the privacy domain, where Europe has this GDPR, these very strong rules, the U.S. doesn't. Uh, and so then the companies, they, they want some amount of certainty. They are you know, worried that their business is going to get disrupted because they want to play in multiple markets. And that's where these transatlantic agreements can, can really have a lot of power because the companies can be willing to sign on to one of those to get rid of that uncertainty. One of the areas that uh, you also talk about in the book, and it's obviously a very important part, a component of of what governments uh, are doing right now, is the tracking uh, of terrorists and their financial uh, paths that they take. And and being able to try and deal with the the financing that a lot of these organizations are moving from country to country, from continent to continent, becomes an incredibly important component. It, It was part of the reason why the United States got into trouble with the European Union to begin with in terms of that tracking of, of documentation. But it, it, it is such an important component to be able to deal with some of the issues around terrorism. Yes. I mean, I think this is, this is really what happened in the wake of 9-11, is that the Treasury Department in the United States, it realized that it was sitting on this just tremendous resource in financial uh, flows, information about financial flows. And it tapped, in particular, this organization called SWIFT, which sits in Belgium. Um, and that organization is like a central hub. If you want to make any kind of bank transfer in the world, it goes through that body, SWIFT. So they have all the records. And you know, one Treasury official described it as the Rosetta Stone uh, for you know, figuring out who our adversaries, what they were doing. And it's not just terrorists. You know, we use this um, also when we're dealing with countries like Iran or North Korea, these kinds of information, uh, you know, it allows for a level of forensics that you wouldn't be able to have really in any other way. The problem was, once again, is that you know, the U.S. went about this without really getting uh, uh, any kind of agreement with Europe. It, they did it in secret. The United States did it in secret. And then the New York Times ran an expose, and it threatened to kind of crash down the whole program. Uh, so then it led to a whole series of of really tough debates between the U.S. and Europe about balancing um, the needs for security versus uh, privacy rights. When you think about about the moves that the European Union has made over the last year or so in terms of, of data privacy and security, they have really been viewed as transformative, as really kind of taking that next step into the future. And, and I guess the question I have for you is how do we – kind of take that perspective and make it a global one, because it does feel like, and I think we can agree upon it here in the United States, that it feels like we are several steps behind in that overall process right now. Yeah, I mean, the European Union, they started thinking about these issues uh, in the early 1990s. You know, before, it's really hard to imagine, but it was before Google was even founded. Right. We think of like this is such a like an essential part of our life, but it's a very recent phenomenon. So the European Union has long been working through these problems, and the GDPR is just the most recent incarnation of it. And I think you're, you're totally right, Dan, that this is having global consequences for people's lives, for how companies work, you know, their business models. And, uh, you know, I personally think that this conversation of, you know, what's the role of data in our society will only become more important as we move towards more machine learning, more artificial intelligence. This question of if we're the oil, if we, the citizens, are making all this data that's driving the economy, 
well, what are the ethics behind that? And, you know, who should be able to use it? Who should be able to benefit from it? And the European Union, I think, of all the countries in the world is really at the cutting edge of saying we have to think about the citizens. We can't just think about uh, what the government needs are or the you know, company's profits. And they have sparked this conversation. And I hope that the U.S. government will and our society will really engage with this. You, you do see this percolating up, I think, for the first time. Um, as I mentioned, California has a very strong privacy law that's just going into force. Uh, they also, the governor, he made this uh, state of the state address where he suggested that there should be some kind of a data tax that should lead to you know, an income stream to citizens in California. So you are seeing this kind of movement in the United States, but I would totally agree that uh, we're behind the curve. But it is interesting that when you think about all those components and the government and, and, and the people that are impacted, there is the element uh, that you also have to bring into play uh, of global growth and, and how much impact we probably have had over the last decade or so from some of these issues of, of loss of data, of, of privacy issues on global growth. Yes. I mean, it's, it's a very um, complex question about how do you keep the trust level so that people continue to engage in these new forms of communication and new technologies? Because, you, you know, that's an important part both of the California legislation and the GDPR is uh, data breach notification, is letting consumers know when their data has been lost. And those notifications have, you know, since these laws have been passed, have just skyrocketed know, tens of thousands of, of breach notices every year. Yeah. So we really need to think about if we're going to keep this part of our digital economy going, that we also have to secure, not in the terrorism sense, but secure in terms of the data maintenance and encryption sense, um, what's happening with our data. Well, it's amazing you mentioned that number, and, and you think with all of those different issues and breaches, uh, it's almost like, to a degree, part of it has become commonplace here in the United States, at least. And, and it's almost kind of part of, of the process of doing business in this country, which realistically it shouldn't be. Yes, I completely agree. And I think, you know, the problem is, is that uh, for a long time, I, actors in the United States saw this largely just as an economic issue that was going to just have maybe some minor economic consequences, like maybe they'd lose a few customers. But we're seeing now that these data breaches are not just economic events, but they're often linked to uh, espionage, both by businesses, but also by foreign governments. And so you see Chinese, Russian hackers using these data breaches for, you know, doxing campaigns where they, you know, they, they take the information and then they release it, they use it to embarrass you know, political partisans or opposition opponents. So, you know, that when that starts happening, the businesses start to get involved in a new way that puts them in tremendous political risk. And, you know, in my mind, that's a large factor behind Facebook's change recently. They don't want to be sitting on that data that's going to get breached. So instead, they want to move to encryption, the kind of WhatsApp model, right. you know, all those kinds of things, take them a step back from this just mass data surveillance. So how are a lot of the, the, the very well-known U.S.-based Internet companies going to be dealing with these issues moving forward, especially considering you have this division between what you can do here in the United States and what you can do in Europe? Uh, and, and obviously it feels more like those companies like Facebook and, and Google and, and others 
are having to really set their standard by what's going on in Europe, even though their their primary market may very well be here in the U.S. Yeah, so I think, you know, for the last 15 years, U.S. companies have played a kind of a, a dual game. They've complied with European standards in Europe, and then there's been kind of a wild west in the United States. And I think what they're running up with is on the, on the government side, on the public sector side, they're facing more and more demands, both from Europe, but also internally from these fragmented uh, rules like California, Washington State is planning laws. You know, that, as those things mount, they're facing that pressure. But they're also facing, I think it's kind of the end of a robber baron phase. You know, there was a phase where you just do whatever you want, make a lot of money. Surveillance capital, capitalism is amazing. Sure. But, but now they're facing new political risks by that. And, you know, the whole um, 2016 election and the fallout for Facebook because of that is another, you know, it's just a very powerful example of what the future could hold. And so I think both the, the companies are starting to see the end game of that model and they're seeing a convenient kind of path to exit, which are these laws, which then give them, uh, you know, protection from from just being uh, blamed for doing nothing. So the, these partnerships that that are in place uh, between entities here in the United States and and the European Union, how much do you think they can impact? And it may not be the case in this particular uh, circumstance with the administration here in the U.S. and and, and the impact that they are, are feeling from countries in the European Union. But it can be probably a path to, to even greater partnerships in, in the next decade or two. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the uh, you're seeing growing conversations both between NGOs and also politicians on both sides of the Atlantic on this privacy uh, stream. So they're, I think the the best example is Washington State. They're they've proposed a GDPR. You know, they're not proposing the California law. They're proposing a GDPR uh, like law. And you know, politicians there have been in contact with politicians. Uh, in Europe, kind of learning about how does this set of legislation work. You also have NGOs in the United States that are learning from powerful NGOs in Europe about how to go after companies, how to bring suits, you know, those kinds of efforts. So I agree with you completely. I'm not convinced that this administration is going to make, I, I basically think this Congress is not going to have any time to pass a privacy law before the next presidential election. Right. But uh, I think afterwards you're going to see more and more movement on this. Abraham, thank you very much for your time today. Greatly appreciate the insight. Uh, Fantastic work by you and Henry. Greatly appreciate you coming on the show today. Well, thanks again for having me. I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you. Abraham Newman, uh, one of the co-authors of the book of Privacy and Power, The Transatlantic Struggle Over Freedom and Security. As I mentioned, uh, co-author Henry Farrell, working with him on that book as well. It is available in bookstores and online for your purchase right now. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 